The Word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in, in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray and we'll get into our scripture. Um, Father, thank you for your grace this morning. As has been mentioned, Lord, as we are just in the midst of a broken, fallen world, our eyes are upon you. I pray, Father, that you would give me grace to deliver your word to your people through this text here in the book of Philippians. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the second week of our fall sermon series called Rooted as we walk through the, the letter to the, um, the Philippians. And this text as was just read a moment ago. Uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. The title of our sermon today will be Our Setbacks for Christ's Advancement. Our Setbacks for Christ's Advancement. And there's three things I want to highlight here that Paul, he emulates, he talks about, he embodies. One is suffering. Two is union. Three is mission. Suffering, union, our union with Christ, our mission for Christ. Uh, as we think about this week, I mean, suffering is obviously on our minds and our hearts. Kenosha, Wisconsin, hurricane, etc. I was reminded by our uh, smart speaker, Alexa, this week that this was the uh, anniversary of Katrina, which was the, the, the biggest or most destructive natural disaster in the history of our country. Suffering is a part of our lives. And as we think about suffering, there's various cultural influences that we have. Uh, that would shape how we would approach sh suffering. So if you think about various world religions, there's various approaches. There's various cultural approaches to suffering. In Hinduism, for example, suffering is something that you would consider to be most often self-caused because of karma, something you've done in a past life. That's why you're suffering. And so the way you would respond to suffering would be resignation. I just, I just have to go through it. I, I did something. I'm going to have to bear it. Buddhism, the way you would overcome suffering is, to, is by detachment, is that you would be, you know, emotionally and perhaps even physically detached from circumstances that would bring suffering in your life. And it's by that detachment that you could overcome suffering. So suffering is no longer really suffering. In Islam, we overcome evil and suffering, or not we, but people who are Islamic overcome evil and suffering. Uh, by following the path of Allah. And then there's cultural influences. There's our traditional Western culture that, you know, you just sort of grin and bear it. 
I think of Frank Lloyd Wright, who was uh, the most famous American architect, and he would have probably said he should have been the most famous architect, period. And he was a, just a flamboyant man. He, he just spent a lot of money. He just lived on the edge. And he left his wife. He was on this fling with his mistress. They went to Europe. They came back. He built a house for her and him, and they were living this life. And then there was this tragedy that happened that she was tragically killed, as well as others in her household. And what does he do? He, he, he just moves on. He, he, he pours himself into his work, and he just moves on. And so this, the way of dealing with suffering in his case was just numbing by, by distraction. And for many people, that's how suffering is dealt with. You know, maybe you come from an Im immigrant family and, and you have an approach to suffering that, hey, if it, it's just things aren't going to be handed to me, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you move forward and you press on. Popular psychology would say, well, suffering is just something you're going to grow from it. Uh, Kelly Clarkson said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And then there is our cultural trend towards individual expressivism. Whereas what, what means, what I mean by that is, is that it's all about me and me expressing to the world who I am and how I feel. The challenge with that as it relates to suffering, as, if, as we have carried on as a culture, is that it, it is actually the least able to help us or to help people deal with suffering. Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at NYU in the social sciences in the Stern School of Business, wrote a book about coddling, uh, the coddling of the American mind. But one of the things that he talks about, um, as I just heard a snippets about the book, but in, in Gen Z, there's this move towards um, how suffering is, is dealt with. There's this, this new trauma that is experienced. And he talks about how in, it's actually really popped up on the college campuses. It, he, he notes around 2013, 2014, that when someone who espouses a view that is contrary to yours, they come on campus, they demonstrate, they speak, you know, all of a sudden, generations past, just boycott that, you know, protest, posters, all that. But 2013, 2014, all of a sudden, students start seeking asylum. They're saying to the university, this creates trauma in my life. I, I can't even be around that person. That person can't be present. You need to protect us. And so there's this trend in our culture becoming, of, of becoming more and more fragile as it relates to suffering. It's too traumatic. But no matter where you are this morning and no matter what your family or cultural upbringing is, Christianity has a unique view of suffering. In fact, as we heard from our text earlier from the Apostle Paul, he talks about how he is in prison. And he's, prison is suffering, and he's facing suffering upon suffering. And he demonstrates for us that Christianity's view of suffering, there's a, there's a very robust view of suffering. In fact, this morning, if we are honest, for most of us, our understanding of suffering falls way short of Paul's understanding. You know, in Christianity, as Christians, we don't always know why we are suffering. So Hinduism would say, well, it's because of karma. You know, you did something in a past life. You need to sort of atone for that or deal with that. 
But when you look at the book of Job, for example, the one thing that he wanted to know and that his friends were trying to speculate was why, why am I suffering? Why did, is it because I did something wrong? He was confident that he didn't. They were confident that he did. God never answers the question for Job. He doesn't know why he suffered. Although as the reader, we understand the backdrop. Romans 8.28, Paul talks about for those of us who are in Christ, if we're called uh, by the Lord, that everything is going to work for our good according to God's will. That means good things and bad things, though we may not know why they are happening, we know the result of what will happen is that God redeems our suffering. So Christianity says we don't necessarily know at all times or most of the time why we go through suffering, but it does say we can know that we are redeemed or that the suffering is redeemed in our life. There's two types of suffering. So we're talking about the first point here of suffering. There's two types of suffering that Paul faces. Those who oppose him as outsiders to the faith, the imperial guard, the authorities that put him in prison in the first place. That's the first type of suffering he's enduring, the actual presence in prison. The second type of suffering that he is receiving is actually coming from other Christians. It talks about how there's people who respond to his suffering and they're emboldened to preach the gospel. And some of them are actually doing it to spite the Apostle Paul. So you've got external people outside, rather, of the faith that are pressuring him and forcing him in this circumstance where he's suffering. And then those even who claim the name of Christ who are inflicting suffering on Paul. And how does he respond? Well, first what he does is he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the Philippians and the relationship. We, we talked about it last week. You could read about it in the first 11 verses, that deep longing he has for them. And the first thing he does is he reassures them, listen, I'm a, he doesn't just say I'm okay. He says that the gospel continues to advance. The gospel is advancing because of my suffering. And if you think about that word advance, it, it, it basically has a connotation of pioneer, that the gospel is going some, somewhere that it ordinarily or otherwise wouldn't go. It's going and it's advancing among this imperial guard. These are soldiers who are part of the Roman Empire who are there to inflict, um, you know, hardship upon Paul, to, to make sure that he is staying where he should be. Um, there's probably at least one soldier who is stationed with him at all times. Most scholars think that he's in Rome while he's in this imprisonment. But the gospel, as a result, is pioneering. And it's actually pioneering among the people who are his captors, those who are watching over him, guarding over him. The gospel is going forward. And so Paul is saying, not only am I okay, but the gospel continues to advance. Second response that Paul is saying about those that are persecuting him from within the faith, he says, even though I recognize their motives are bad, the fact that Christ is preached, in that I rejoice. How does Paul do that? What's going on here? How, does, how is Paul 
it, it, you know, is, is he just sort of in this sort of mental state where he doesn't really see the suffering? You know, is that what Christianity is about? Is he just sort of like sugarcoating everything? And, you know, is he, is he the type of person that, you know, they, they say everything is good on the outside, but internally they're dying? Like, what is happening? How can Paul say in the middle of prison, yeah, it's because I'm here the gospel moves forward. And though there are those who call on Christ that want to afflict me, I am actually joyful that Christ's name is going forward. How, what's going on? Well, what's going on is that Paul has an understanding of suffering that we just, we just don't often have. But in his writing and in the word of God, we are called to embrace. We're called, to, we're called up to this understanding of suffering that, he, that we face. There's no resignation in Paul. You know, not like, unlike Hindus where you're just resigned, okay, it's because I did something. No, Paul sees that there's a good outcome for his suffering. There's no detachment in Paul. He's not just saying, well, I'm going to pull away and have a stoic response to my suffering. No, he actually has joy. Unlike Islam, he doesn't overcome his suffering by just, you know, putting his head down and following the path. But in fact, his suffering is a direct response to or a cause from following Jesus. He doesn't numb his pain as so often we can do to our suffering I mentioned Frank Lloyd Wright, but really on a more average level, numbing our pain through things that we, substances, through food, through entertainment, through et cetera, through our work. Paul doesn't downplay the suffering. He doesn't just grin and bear it. And he certainly doesn't lash out and seek asylum from the suffering. He's able to have joy. He's able to see that there's a redemption because of it. And there's, there's one reason. He's, he's, he's rooted in Christ, but he has this understanding of his union with Christ. So second point is union. Popular psychology, as I mentioned a moment ago, would say, okay, you can grow from your suffering. And, and that's good. You know, that's a good thing to think about as we suffer. But there's something much deeper that Paul is recognizing about his suffering. He recognizes that Christ is mystically united with him in his suffering. Now, in the translation, we have ESV and some of our English translations. We may not pick up on this. It says in verse 13 that his imprisonment in this translation is for Christ, and that's good. But when you look at the original language, there is this prepositional phrase. It's very prevalent in Paul's writings and throughout the New Testament, in Christo. In other words, a loose translation would be in Christ. And, and this phrase is very significant. It, it would be something very easy to gloss over. So on a linguistical level, the word in or the preposition in in the Greek has a very wide range. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean for. And it certainly is appropriate to translate it that way. However, theologically, it has a rich meaning, particularly when Paul is talking about being in Christ. He's mentioning as what scholars would say is our union with Jesus. And so he is taking his understanding of union with Christ into his moment of suffering. We often as contemporary Christians think about 
suffering and our suffering, and, or not, not, rather, not our suffering, but we think about being Christians and our union with Christ or what Christ did for us at our initial point. We put emphasis on our initial point of salvation, that I, you know, I turned to Christ or, you know, I was, I was brought up in the Lord by my parents or what have you, but we often look back on sort of our, our introduction, our conversion to the faith of being something that connects us to Jesus. But the, the New Testament, and, and, and particularly Paul, has a much richer understanding of our relationship with Jesus Christ as it relates to not only our past, but our present and our future. Here's what I mean. When you read the New Testament, it says that we were crucified with Christ. Everything that Christ experienced, we experience with him. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were raised with Christ. And we received the benefit of those things by the Holy Spirit, that the fact that Jesus took our place in his death, burial, and resurrection, we receive the blessing and benefit of salvation. But not only that, Jesus ascended. He is seated in heaven. Ephesians says that we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And when Jesus returns, as we've talked about already in our, our service today, when we're waiting for his return, we will be united to Christ. Not only are we in union with Christ as it pertains to his perfect work and his reign, but we're also united to Christ in how we receive our salvation. Now, here's what I mean. Now, we think about salvation oftentimes as a thing that we enter into on the front end of being a Christian. And that's certainly true. But it is, again, more robust than that. In fact, the scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We had union with him before we even were. We were called by Christ. We have been given faith. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We were justified in Christ. In other words, we once were enemies with God, but because of our, or through our faith in Jesus, we have now right standing with God. Only through Jesus Christ, our righteousness comes from him. Not only are we justified in Christ, we are sanctified. The process of us being more like Jesus is something that Christ himself authors in our life. He sent the Holy Spirit. He asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit so that we could be made more like Jesus. We are adopted into God's family because of Jesus. John chapter 1 says that, that he gave the right to those who call on his name to be called children of God. We are adopted in Christ Jesus. We persevere in this life of brokenness and sin, and we can have confidence that we will make it in the faith to the end because Jesus himself preserves us, as we read about last week. He who began a, per a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And finally, one day, we will be glorified in Christ. There was going to come a day where all of Christians, all believers, 
Old Testament, New Testament believers together. When Jesus returns, we, some of us will have passed and we will be in heaven. Others will still be alive. But no matter where we are, if we are in Christ, when Jesus returns, the scripture says we will be glorified in Christ Jesus. We have an amazing and beautiful union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's that understanding that Paul has as he endures his suffering. Paul's not just suffering alone. He is suffering in Christ. He's suffering for Christ. He has this understanding of union. You know, my kids, so we have four children and uh, 11 and uh, 11 all the way down to two years old. And especially our younger kids, they, they sometimes, you know, they're all about personal autonomy. So they see mommy drinking from daddy's water or me drinking from mommy's water. They're like, hey, wait a minute. No, no, no. That's mommy's. So, so, so they, 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 they recognize autonomy, but they don't fully understand union. That what is hers, what's mommy's, is mine. And what is mine is mommy's. We have union. And it's amazing what marriage does. It presents the picture for us as believers of what it means to be a Christian, that we have this union with Jesus, that what is his is ours. And what is ours is his. Second Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We don't live for ourselves. We are in union with Jesus. We live for him, and therefore our suffering is for him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. But Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sinclair Ferguson says, Paul recognizes that because he's been united to Jesus, to our crucified, risen, and exalted Lord, that not only does he receive the benefit of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but also in his very ministry and in his very life, he will have a pattern of encountering both suffering and triumph. And what is true for Paul is true for you and I. That because we are joined to Jesus, not only do we receive the benefit of his suffering, the suffering servant, his death, burial, and his resurrection, but we should expect that the pattern of our life, the pattern of our ministry, the pattern of our church existence here in Champaign-Urbana will be one of suffering and triumph. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says that the, the elements, he, he, and, and he references Psalm 119, that the elements of becoming a great theologian, he's not talking about people who sit in rooms of, with lots of bookcases. He's talking about all of us as believers. And he says that the way by which we grow in our understanding of God, he says it's three things, oratio, Meditatio, tentatio. Oratio, prayer, meditation. That's meditating on God's word. 
tentatio, that's testing, or being in trials. In other words, the way that we grow as a Christian is through suffering. It's, it's prayer, it's the word, and real-life suffering, even as our Lord endured suffering on our behalf. Christ, uh, Paul understood this in his imprisonment and even in his ridicule by other Christians. And we are invited to understand this and embrace it as we go through affliction and suffering of all types, both because of being in this life in a fallen world, but even more so because of following Jesus, our crucified, risen, and exalted Lord. Lastly, mission. If we understand and embrace our union with Jesus, then of course, we would want to be a part of his mission. If everything that is his is ours and everything that is ours is his, then of course our life should be forged into walking with Jesus and being on his mission, his ministry of reconciling other people back to God. I remember a year ago, a little over a year ago, as I've mentioned to many of you, my wife and I and my family went through this traumatic experience where our, uh, our third child, our daughter, had an emergency brain surgery. And it was, it, was, it was awful. For eight days, she was just having this severe pain and headaches, and there was a swelling that was developing. Doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. Finally, they said, okay, you gotta go to the ho- you're going to have to go to the ER. We took her to the pediatric ER. They thought it was just you know sinus infection, antibiotics, and be all done with that. Neurosurgeon comes in 30 minutes later or a little bit later and says, we're going to have to do emergency surgery. We think the infection's on her brain. And so all that just spun, just, just burst into, into action. And uh, my wife was by her 24 hours you know, a day for the sur- after surgery and then the recovery process. I was back with the kids, and we had family helping, thankfully. But there was this one particular night where I was on the way to the hospital. I called our neighbor upstairs or texted, and I said, hey, can you come down and just be, our kids are asleep. Just come and sit and watch, you know, you don't have to do anything. I, wanna, I need to go visit, you know, my wife and our daughter. And so I, I, I dial up an Uber, which I typically, we had a car in New York. I didn't need Ubers very often. Uh, and so I get in the car, and then I hear this song that was very familiar to me uh, called I Am Redeemed, which is a Christian song. It's, it's a song that a Christian band does. It was a song, actually, that we had used in an outreach in, in part of our ministry there in New York probably like two, two years prior. And so I immediately hear this song, and I'm like thinking to, to myself, okay, this guy's a Christian. So I ta- start talking to him. Uh, he's definitely, I, I recognize, you know, he's not from New York, not even from America. But I said, so you're Christian? He's like, no. I'm like, well, okay. You, you like this music? He's like, yeah. And so I realized this guy's a Muslim. And he loves listening to Christian music. And so I start conversing with him. Of course, this is a 10-minute Uber ride. And it, God just opens up this opportunity for me to talk to him about how Jesus wants to redeem your life. And it wasn't something that I was looking for at all. I'm thinking about something else. I'm thinking about what we're going through as a family. And I bring that up to say, not to say, okay, well, that's, that is the example. I wasn't looking for that. 
but to say, even in our suffering, God can create opportunity for us to be on his mission. So as we think about how we apply this, when you suffer, what is your mindset? Are you, is it resignation? Do you want to withdraw? Is it numbing yourself? Is it lashing out? Is it distracting yourself in your work, you know, by your work or what have you? What's your mindset to address suffering? Secondly, do you recognize your union with Christ in your suffering? Everything that I said that it was true about the Apostle Paul is true about you if you are in Jesus, if you are in Christ. Do you recognize you have union, an amazing, beautiful, robust union with Christ? He wants you to know, Jesus wants you to know that your suffering is redeemable. It's not for nothing. It is not wasted. It is not random. But God is forging you to be more like him. And in fact, I would say point three, are you understanding in Christ's union that you would be willing to suffer for him? That you would be willing to push past the levels of comfort that would say, I don't want to say that, or I, won't, I don't want to approach that person, or I don't want to present myself as a believer. But are you willing to suffer for him? And finally, thinking about your present circumstances, how can the suffering you are enduring right now serve for Christ's advancement? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing uh, of your word. Thank you, Lord, that suffering is not just things that we could address in the ways of all these various cultures, but that, in fact, you have a very high view of suffering, the fact that Jesus himself suffered on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that for, for all of us, that we would grow in understanding of our union with Christ and that through that understanding that our life would be about your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.